You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. We're going to, uh, we're going to be introducing uh, three um, excellent sessions, um, looking for, for uh, themes, uh, as, as is the uh, tendency. Um, I think there is one, which is this is your, this is your moment for, for some spiritual... Uh, nourishment and replenishment, or the spiritual half hour, uh, where there will be uh, three very interesting, inspiring sessions. Um, I'm going to introduce the first two. Um, Louise Chan, editor of Psychologist magazine, will be introducing the third. Um, The first will be poetry. And uh, these are uh, Jack Sturger, who is the EI Atlantic um, advisor, also actor, director, writer, uh, and James Long of Long Productions, who is a communications marketing uh, guru uh, of many of uh, one one of uh, one title that he was associated with was the Atlantic uh, magazine, and they have chosen uh, poems from uh, a book from uh, Blood Axe Productions, uh, which is. Um, uh, a part of a trilogy, or the third uh, part of a trilogy, uh, this one entitled Being Human. And uh, Simon Thirsk over there uh, could tell you much more about it than me. Uh, but the, one of the elements of these three books was to choose poems that are very accessible to people and uh, that people really want to hear and that are very inspiring, and uh, um, some of which have uh, been chosen by some of the, uh, the readers of, pre- of the previous two two books. So briefly, I'll be bringing them on. Every, every single person or a set has got roughly 500 seconds apiece. So you haven't got very long, and it's not fair. Um, but uh, you can tap into these people later on and get much more out of them. Um, uh, Satish Kumar is, uh, will then come up and is the second speaker. Um, I think you've probably all read about him. Uh, among other things, uh, at the age of 18, he walked 8,000 miles in, uh, a, 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 on a peace walk. Uh, following the imprisonment of Bertrand Russell, uh, which he heard about while uh, drinking coffee uh, in Bangalore uh, with his friends. Uh, And uh, I think it's extraordinary to, uh, one thing, to think you might do something like that, but then to go off and do it with no money in your pocket and initially no passport. Um, I know he talks very inspiringly uh, and generously. We're giving him 500 seconds. Uh, to, tell, to tell his piece, uh, but uh, you can tap into him later and get more out of him. So, uh, the poetry first, please. Hello, everybody. How does one arrive here? Well, 23 years ago, there was a young gal who came to New York. She was a Brit, Julia Hopspam, and she met this American in a coffee shop, Patisserie Lanciani, that does not exist anymore. And our friendship has endured for those 23 years. 17 years later, our young British gal started her own business, a place for bright ideas. And then six years later, she asked this not-so-young American anymore to recite a poem from blood axe, which was a terrifying thought. And uh, 
that's where I am. So, <laughs> introductions first. Uh, yes, I'm just reminded very briefly of the last time I ever did this. It was more than 20 years ago on the Kennedy Center stage in Washington. I had a, a part with the great English actress Irene Worth, but I, then I had to go on as an understudy first in the same play, uh, besides playing uh, the part that I was uh, supposed to play. And just as I uh, had to no costume. They dressed me up in George Grizzard's overcoat and put a hat on my head and a fake mustache so I could pretend to be a police doctor. And uh, I was kneeling, just waiting for the curtain to go up because the line was the first line in the play was mine. And and just as the curtain was about to go up, uh, Irene Worth walked over to me and said, "James, darling." And I said, "Yes, Miss Worth." And she said, "You look ridiculous." <laughs> With that said, "Nobody" by Michael Lasky. If you can't bring yourself to build a snowman, or even to clench, or, or fling at the pine tree trunk, at least find some reason to take you out of yourself. Scrape a patch of grass clear for the birds, maybe a prod at your shrubs so they shake off the weight, straighten up, or, or, or just stump about, leaving prints of your boots, your breath steaming out. Promise promise. Don't let yourself in for this moment again. The end of the afternoon. Drawing the curtains on the glare of the garden. A whole day of snow nobody's trodden. The Sunlight on the Garden by Louis McNeese. The sunlight on the garden hardens and grows cold. We cannot cage the minute within its nets of gold. When all is told, we cannot beg for pardon. Our freedom as freelances advances towards its end. The earth compels. Upon it, sonnets and birds descend. And soon, my friend, we shall have no time for dances. The sky was good for flying, defying the church bells. And every evil iron, siren, and what it tells the earth compels. We are dying. Egypt, dying. And not expecting pardon, hardened in hearts anew, but glad to have sat under thunder and rain with you, and grateful too for sunlight and the garden. Blue Field. This is by Lavinia Greenlaw. A flood as the day releases, and the whole snow world is neither wet nor deep, but primary. Color so inherent, it doesn't fall from my skin, but rises the snow, the trees, the road, 
This blue isn't built or grown. It has no tissue, nothing to touch or taste or bring to mind a memory. No iris or artery, no gentia, no aconite or anemone, no slate, plum, oil spill or, or, or gun, no titanium or, or, or turquoise, no mercury or, or magnesium, no phosphorus, sapphire or silver foil, no, no duck egg, no, no milk jug, no chambray, no, no denim, no indigo, octopus ink, no ink, no element, this blue moment. Oh, in a language that claims no relation but greets in perfect passing picture blue. <laughs> Cyan. Ultraviolet twilight. Higher than the heaven of swimming or flying, no splash. A time without clouded objects in which you might become the glass you swallowed through the cold. Lights draw back behind the rim of the eyes as it closes. I keep my distance as things turn blue through stillness and distance. As everything blue is distant. Dawn Revisited by Rita Dove. Imagine you wake up with a second chance. The blue jay hawks his pretty wares and the oak is still standing, spreading glorious shade. If you don't look back, the future never happens. How good to rise in sunlight in the prodigal smells of biscuits, eggs and sausage on the grill, the whole sky is yours. To write on, blown open to a blank page, come on, shake a leg. You'll never know who's down there frying those eggs if you don't get up and see. Thank you very much. As you heard that I walked from India to America, apart from the Atlantic Ocean, I sailed in the Queen Mary boat, courtesy of Bertrand Russell, because I did meet him at age 92. But on the way, as I was walking, I was feeling a bit tired and despondent. Am I achieving anything? And I was walking with a friend, another Indian friend, and I was distributing leaflets. Why am I walking? I'm walking for peace, supporting Bertrand Russell, nuclear disarmament. And this leaflet in Russian, I gave to two young ladies in Georgia by the Black Sea. They read it. I said, Stop, stop. Have you really walked? I said, yes, we have really walked. Tell us how did you walk. Come, come and have, we have a lunch break. Tell us your story. 
So we went in. As you heard, we were walking without any money. So invitation for a cup of tea or some bread. Any time is tea time, <laughs> especially when you have no money. So we went. She made some tea, also some bread. And then suddenly she had a brainwave. She went out of the room, came back with four packets of tea. And she said, these packets of tea are not for you. For whom are they? I asked. She said, I would like you to be my messenger and deliver one packet of tea to our premier in Moscow, in the Kremlin. Second packet of tea to the president of France. <laughs> the third packet of tea to the prime minister of England. And a fourth to the president of the United States of America. You are walking, going there for peace. I can't go there. But please give them a message from me. What is your message? My message to them is that if you ever get a mad thought of pressing the nuclear button, please stop for a moment and have a fresh cup of tea. <laughs> And that will give you a moment to think that your weapons will not only destroy your enemies, but they will destroy all men, women, children, animals, trees, forests, lakes, fishes, everything will go. Is that what you want? My despondence disappeared. I said to my friend, now we have a message to deliver. And we went to the Kremlin. We were received in the Kremlin. We went to Palace Elysee. We were not received. <laughs> Refused. President has no time for you. We demonstrated. We got arrested. We were put in jail for three days. And then the chief of the police in, in, in uh, wherever, France, Paris, said, please give me your packet of tea and you go. Otherwise, I have to deport you to India. <laughs> so we delivered the tea to the peace police officer with the courtesy of a French uh, host. We crossed the channel, walked to London, and we were received by Lord Attlee on behalf of Prime Minister Wilson, and we delivered the third packet of tea, and we met Burton Russell and sailed by his help. He said, do you want some money? You have to go to America. So we have no money. We don't touch money. But if you can give us two tickets, we will go. And so he gave us two tickets. And we went from New York to Washington, walking, and we delivered the fourth packet in the White House. And during this 8,000 miles journey, two and a half years, and by the way, this is the 50th anniversary of my walk. It was 1962. Burton Russell demonstrated and got arrested and put in jail in 1961. And I walked in 62. It took time to prepare and get ready. And so I learned in this walk, that was my university. I have no other qualifications. That was my university. Two and a half years of Earth University. And what I learned is that we are all related. And everything is related. In the West particularly, but in modern times, we 
separate things. We put in compartments, departments, separation. Uh, psychology separate from anthropology or anthropology separate from science and science separate from spirituality and spirituality separate from psychology, etc., etc. We separate. What I learned, the world is one place and we are all related. Everything is related. And this is why I came up with this idea, the soil, which represents the natural environment, and the soul, which repre represents us as human beings. I mean, some of you may be not believing in soul, but what I mean by soul, I simply mean an integrity where mind, thinking, mind, and heart unite. That's a soul. Soul unites the thinking and feeling. Soul unites the mind and the heart. Soul unites the quantity with quality. Soul unites with words, with meaning. When that in invisible reality is married with visible reality, that's the soul. We all have it, but we don't believe in it. Never mind. So, so the, the soil, the environment, also has soul. The trees have soul. The, the rivers have soul. They have, a, they have their own invisible quality, which we, we just look at the tree and see, oh, it's just wood. And how much? 500 pounds or 200 years old, or whatever. We, every time, measure everything in quantitative terms. When you bring quality into it, then you are talking about the soul. Like you have a letter of the law and you have a spirit of the law. Spirit is not written. You cannot write the spirit of the law in words. But there is a spirit of the law. So that is what I mean by soul. And society, I came up with because I realized that as individuals, we cannot survive. Individualism is fine, but individualism has to be complemented and balanced by community, as John Snow said this, morn this morning. Community, society. Mrs. Thatcher is saying there is no such thing as society. But without society, we cannot survive. So as we take care of the soil, the environment, without which we cannot run our economy, we are so obsessed with economy, 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 stupid. I think those who are obsessed with economy, they are truly stupid. So economy, I was invited to speak at the London School of uh, Economics, and I said to them, you have to change your name. You have to call your university LSEE, -E, London School of Ecology and Economy. Ecology means knowledge of, of the ecosystem, knowledge of the earth home. And economy means management of the earth home. How are you going to manage something you don't know? And they say, oh, you are right. We don't teach ecology here. I said, that's why the world economy is in a mess. Because you are sending all these thousands upon thousands of graduates in the world to manage something which they don't know. How are you going to manage something which you don't know? So we need this fundamental idea. This is bright idea that I want to present to you. Soil, soul, society. Everything is interconnected. Everything is interdependent. Everything is interrelated. But these three words are different from egality, liberty, fraternity, or life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, or mind, body, spirit, because they are very anthropocentric. But I have come up with these three words, which are much more holistic, which takes the environment to, into account, the society into account, and the person, individual soul into account. So this way, we can have world picture, a big mind. And when... Uh, uh, um, Hope, not, um, anyway, when people talk about the mind of God, 
mind of God is nowhere else than mind of God is here. The moment your mind expands into this consciousness of wholeness, when the whole universe becomes part of your consciousness, then we are touching the mind of God. Thank you very much. Um, my name's Nicola Streeton. I'm an illustrator and I'm going to talk about fresh forms of art from old memories. to talk about memory, I wanted to use that little anecdote to introduce the idea that memories just don't go away sometimes, and yet we can reconfigure them to um, change the narratives of what happens. Um, I've just recently had published a graphic memoir about something that happened to me 16 years ago, and um, it was the, about the experience of grief following the death of my two-year-old child. And... Um, it's a, so it's a narrative that happened a long time ago. The other th reason I wanted to introduce to the little <laughs> tap dance is to play with your expectations because um, if I'd started with I'm talking about uh, this memory of grief, you might have had a different expectation, plus we're in a lecture theatre situation. So I wanted to make public my very personal private experience, but I didn't want to do it in a just focusing on myself and what it meant in that way. I wanted to make it a way that had relevance in a wider social um, context because it was done so many years after the event. I wanted to make it reach a wider um, audience. Oh, sorry, I'll just read that little bit. So here's the page where um, I'm the narrator in the comic book. Uh, why is funeral etiquette so unclear to us? when death is as common as birthdays and marriage. So it was that reflection years later on this personal experience. So why the comic book form? Because that's what, that's what this book is. Well, I thought comics are democratic. They're on throwaway paper. They're low art form. They're um, often on subjects like the funnies or uh, using animals or, you know, cartoony animals. Um, they're light subject matter fantasy. So I thought, how brilliant a form. And we're not threatened by them. Everyone knows how to do a comic. What a brilliant form to throw in a subject matter that's quite difficult, quite serious, and quite dealing with some taboo subject matter. So a couple of weeks ago, I received a letter from the mother of one of my friends who had read the book. So it's a three-page three letter. Uh, she says, I found the idea of a graphic novel treating such a tragic subject, tragic subject so very strange. I can think of very few things worse than losing a child, and to write about it in that way seemed somehow to trivialise it. Brilliant. 
Comics are easy. So here you can see three of our well-loved characters from comics. Well, I'm sure you'll recognize at least one. Um, the line used is, a, is the idea of dots and a line. Even babies recognize the human face in that very simplistic way. And again, I liked the idea of using that um, to talk about uh, quite a difficult subject matter, again, if it's presented in a very light form. So back to my letter. She says on the next page... <laughs> Another reservation I had at the outset was to be rather surprised that someone with obvious design drawing ability would illustrate the book in such a simplistic style, a form which seemed rather lacking in skill, at least initially. So I think this letter perfectly encapsulates the general assumptions that people make about comics and I really wanted to twist that round or in the work that I did. So it's this expectation not only of the form, the style, that it should be like superheroes or like uh, the Beano type form, but also the content. So I used the simple style that I referred to um, for recognition. I think the other thing about two dots and a line is if it uses photos, it has a much narrower reach as an audience than if it's just cartoon style. And the wonderful thing about the comic form is impact and shorthand. This is one of the pages that a lot of people have responded to and mentioned. The more I told people, the more intrigued I became in their responses. I found myself judging people by their reactions. My child died. Oh, my friend's baby died. In fact, I helped her through it. Minus 20 out of 10. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. If there's anything I can do, just say 10 out of 10. Would you like to come for dinner? 9 out of 10. What happened? 10 out of 10. 10. So obviously in the real story, I, didn't, I wasn't um, grading people, but it's a perfect way of very quickly showing how we all understand this marking out of 10 in our schools. And... And I think the reader responds to it because we, we read it and think, how would I do in that quiz? <laughs> and the other wonderful thing about the comic form is this idea of toxic chatter, which again, the reader, I hope you'll all, hope it's not just me who does this, that you're, you say something lovely and you're thinking something quite unacceptable. Soon after Billy died, John and I went to Marie's party. It seemed like everyone was pregnant. I'm eight weeks. I've booked a place in the nursery at work. Congratulations, we say. And I'm thinking, she can't. It's not fair. Maybe if her baby could die just for a bit. Oh, what am I thinking? And then there's the visual thing of being, that my feeling is I'm being punched in the stomach by what she's saying. So basically, my bright idea to finish is to challenge expectations. Thank you. Thank you, James and Jack, Satish and Nicola. I don't think we've got much time for anything more because we're already running late. But I think it was a really nice interlude with spirituality, colour, tap dance. It was quite different from everything else. But uh, I think it's not going to hold us back from you know, wrestling with some more knotty issues a bit later on. Thank you.